What's your favourite drink? Just chat to your neighbour. Okay, if we could come together again then, please. A very warm welcome uh, to you all. Um, my name's Mike. Uh, I'm a curate here, as many of you know. But if you are new here this morning or uh, you didn't manage to make it, uh, sorry, this evening, and you didn't manage to make it, where are we, uh, last week, um, then we're in a, a mini-series and we're looking at uh, the abundant love of God. Last week we saw the abundant love of God in the miracle of Jesus t- turning uh, water into wine. And uh, this week we're looking at another incident involving Jesus as um, water. Water, as we look at uh, the incident of Jesus and the, um, the woman at the well. Let's just watch this uh, short video, though, to get us in the mood. Wonderful. Well, according to the website of Buxton Water, their bottles are filled with water that has been rising up naturally through the Peak District for over 5,000 years. They say that Buxton Water refreshes and replenishes, giving you the energy to feel full of life to make the most out of every day, and apparently it's those spontaneous moments in life that give you a lift, a feeling of purpose, and make you feel full of vitality and happiness. That's what Buxton Water says being naturally pumped up is all about. In our Bible passage today, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Jesus' claim to the Samaritan woman is that he is the real source of living water. So whilst drinking Buxton water might give you the spontaneous ability to do the splits, I hope by the end of my talk you'll see that drinking the spring water Jesus gives is the best way to find real life and purpose. And in order to prove this, we're going to see that Jesus is the source of living water which infiltrates everywhere, which washes away sin, and which flows out of us. So firstly, Jesus is the source of living water which infiltrates everywhere. We'll all be familiar with the way that water has a habit of finding the path of least resistance, particularly when it gets cold in winter and our pipes ice up. Um, when the, the burst water comes gushing down often through the ceiling, leaving water everywhere and a hefty insurance claim. But the living water from Jesus often follows a different track. At the start of the passage, we're told that Jesus uh, has left Judea and is heading back north to Galilee. Then in verse 4, it says that he had to go through Samaria. Well, the route through Samaria was certainly the most direct route from Judea to Galilee. But it wasn't the only choice Jesus had, and it wasn't the one most serious Jewish rabbis would have chosen. To pure-blooded Jews like the Samaritans, uh, to to pure-blooded Jews, the Samaritans were a people polluted by interbreeding with pagans. Their religious texts were incomplete and flawed. Their worship of God was damnable because it was corrupted by idols. And they'd gone so far as previously setting up a rival temple to the one in Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim. Don't know if there's any Harry Potter fans out there, but the Samaritans were to the Jews what the mudbloods are to the house of Slytherin. Most respectable Jewish teachers would rather do two halves of a dogleg, first heading east over the River Jordan before heading north to Galilee. But Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
And the reason is because he's following the Father's will. Elsewhere in John's Gospel, it tells us that Jesus only does what he sees his Father is doing. This means that every meeting Jesus ever had was a divine appointment. Jesus never met anyone by accident. There was always a purpose in mind. Some of you here might have experienced that wonderful feeling of being placed in a person's path to have a particular conversation um, for a particular uh, reason. As if God kind of ordained that it should be so. Well, every meeting was like that for Jesus because he was perfectly in tune with his Father's will. So as Jesus sits down by Jacob's well, it was the will of God that he should meet this Samaritan woman. In this meeting, though, we see that one of the reasons Jesus is able to infiltrate everywhere is because he defies convention. We've already seen Jesus defying convention by travelling through a community of religious outcasts, seemingly unworthy of God's blessing. But now Jesus defies convention by speaking with a woman. We get a sense of just how controversial this was in the culture of Jesus' day by the way his disciples act in verse 27. When they return from the marketplace, they're perplexed by Jesus' actions, but they're too nervous to confront their master to raise any concerns. What's more, this wasn't just any Samaritan woman. She wasn't visiting Jacob's well in the scorching heat of midday um, to avoid competition from other women trying to draw water. You see, water collection then was a community event. It was something they all got together to do. The reason this woman had to visit Jacob's well at noon was because in the eyes of her community, she was a woman of ill repute. In her culture, any woman who had had more than three husbands was met with great disapproval. And this woman was living with man number six in the queue. Essentially, the community regarded her as if if she was a prostitute. She was an outcast woman in an outcast region. So when Jesus initiates a conversation with her by asking, will you give me a drink? He goes out of his way to break every social taboo in the book. To further understand the outrageousness of Jesus' request, it might help us to think of the plight of Asia Bibi. Asia Bibi is a, a Christian woman from Pakistan on death row because she used the same cup as Muslim women when she went to draw water from a well. Her fellow Muslim fruit pickers said that the water was unclean because a Christian woman had touched it and after an argument she was later accused of blasphemy. When Jesus, who had nothing to draw water with, asked the Samaritan woman to draw water uh, for him, so he could drink from her leather buckets. In the eyes of his fellow Jews, he was making himself seriously unclean. Yet despite all this background of cultural resistance, Jesus still asks her, will you give me a drink? By making this request, Jesus is doing much more than trying to alleviate his thirst. He's ignoring a history of hostility And he's coming alongside her to share a common need. It's no wonder she responds, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me 
for a drink. Jesus has flipped the natural power dynamic on its head. He's saying, I am weak and I need your help. By making this simple request for a drink, Jesus is elevating the woman's self-worth. He's ignoring every bad thing the world would say about her to put her down and is accentuating what she does have to offer. Jesus puts her in a position of strength in order to restore her dignity. Can you see how beautiful Jesus is? Can you see the abundance of his love? He's self-assured enough not to need to play the hero. He's humble, looking first to build her up. Well, hopefully the penny's beginning to drop for us if we want to share the beauty of Jesus with others. Jesus' actions prove that all people are valuable to God. And this gives Christians special incentive to reach out in places that our culture considers unclean, out of bounds, or forsaken. This means putting aside any cultural uh, discriminations that we've absorbed, whether it's based on religion, social class, ethnicity, or skin colour. Instead, we're to pray that God would have some divine appointments lined up for us, that he would place people in our path who could really do with a chat then let's go out of our way to come alongside them, to build them up, revealing the truth that what they have to offer matters to us just as much as it matters to God. We don't need to go blundering in with a superior attitude as if we've got all the answers. We'll be far more willing, uh, effective if we're willing to serve Jesus from a position of need, out of humility rather than pride. After all, most people feel they need to belong before they're ever ready to talk about matters of belief. Well, thus far we've seen how Jesus is the source of living water which infiltrates everywhere. Secondly, we're going to see that this life-giving water from Jesus washes away sin. After Jesus tells a Samaritan woman if she truly knew who he was, she would have asked him for living water and he would have given it to her. She, I imagine, quite mockingly points out in verse 11 that he doesn't even have the equipment to draw any water from this well. So how can he possibly do more for her than, uh, than their common ancestor Jacob who provided this water source which has enabled uh, people to drink from it for over fi- uh, 1,000 years? But Jesus answers by noting the difference between the water contained in Jacob's well and the water he can provide. The water in Jacob's well comes as a result of Jacob's own efforts. He had to work seriously hard to dig down to a depth of around 100 foot in this case. And uh, on the screens you'll see a picture of a hand-dug well, hopefully. There it is. This is a hand-dug well that some of my colleagues uh, helped to dig in Darfur when they used to work there. It's not easy digging a well. This is 30 foot. Jacob's well is 100 foot. Then drawing the water back up requires human effort to lower a bucket down and hurl, it, uh, and hurl it back up each time. And when the water gets to the surface, it's stagnant, it's lifeless. It requires boiling just to make it clean. And what's more, as Jesus points out, everyone who drinks water from Jacob's well 
will find themselves thirsty again a few hours later. It's only a temporary fix. Well, in contrast, uh, Jesus describes the water he gives as a gift from God. It comes through grace and not through any effort of our own. This is revealed in the way Jesus describes the water he gives as spring water. That's what the translation living water means. Spring water is naturally pumped up to the surface. It takes no effort to collect it. You simply need to know where it is to be able to find it. And once you start drinking this water, Jesus says that a new spring of life bubbles up in you, which wells up into eternity. Well, unsurprisingly, in verse 15, this offer of endless uh, spring water all sounds rather exciting to the Samaritan woman, but it's evident that Jesus and her are talking on two completely different planes. In order for her to drink the life-giving water Jesus gives, he must shift the focus away from her physical needs and shine the spotlight onto the spiritual state of her heart. Therefore, at the right time, Jesus challenges her to go call her husband. Not because Jesus is unaware of her living arrangements, but because if this interaction is to have any eternal significance whatsoever, she must acknowledge her sin before God. And I want us to closely observe the Samaritan woman's internal struggle as Jesus lovingly looks into the deepest recesses of her heart and soul. Initially, Jesus' challenge makes her feel uncomfortable. And so she replies by just gently massaging the truth. I have no husband, she says. What she doesn't realize is that Jesus already knows everything about her. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus lays her complete history before her and asks her to own it. But for the Samaritan woman, admitting the whole truth is painful. It means digging up the darkness inside and old wounds, the misadventures she'd rather forget. And so next, she tries to sidetrack the conversation by raising a religious controversy. She hopes that by embroiling Jesus in a fruitless discussion about where people should worship, she can muddy the waters of her own sin and avoid feeling quite so exposed. But Jesus isn't going to give up on the pursuit of her soul. He immediately shifts the conversation back onto matters of God. He tells her that true worship has no concern for physical location because God is present everywhere by his Spirit. True worship is about a relationship with God. It begins when our spirit is united with his. And it's forged through a mutual disclosure of the truth. God has revealed his holy nature to us in his word in the Bible. And in response, we must be honest about our own state with all our sin laid bare. Well, for the Samaritan woman, this all feels a bit too profound. So she's got one last tactic up her sleeve. If she can't shake off the truth, then at least she can defer having to do anything about it. I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. 
In other words, what you're saying, Jesus, sounds plausible, but I'm not ready to confront the truth now. I'd much rather put it off until later. To which Jesus declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The Samaritan woman has got no more excuses left. There's no more time to delay. Jesus is God's Messiah she's been waiting for, and his message is very clear. If she confesses her sins, he will wash them away. Well, perhaps if you've observed the Samaritan woman squirming, it's reminded you of how much she's like me and like you. After Jesus rose from the dead and returned to be with his Father, he promised to send the Holy Spirit. And one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to convince the world about the damage our sin causes in our own lives and also in the lives of others. And perhaps this evening as I've been talking, you felt God's Spirit nudge you, challenge you in an area of your life you'd rather was left unexposed. Maybe it's connected with feelings of shame or embarrassment, a hurt that you can't let go of, and so you're struggling to forgive. It could be that like the Samaritan woman, you find yourself trying to seek fulfilment in life in the perfect partner or in sexual relationships, and so you struggle to commit with, to one person. Or possibly you've been seeking sexual pleasure in destructive ways like using pornography. Alternatively, it could be that the family that you've come from, well, nothing you ever did was good enough. And so you've been trying to dig your own version of Jacob's well, trying to earn others' acceptance or even God's. Consequently, you feel exhausted because nothing you ever do seems to reach the right mark. With any of these reasons ring true, then what's stopping you from drinking deeply from the well of God's grace. Of being replenished by the living water of God's Holy Spirit, from which Jesus invites you to drink from today. Is it that you're worried about facing up to the reality of who you are, what you've done and how you feel? It might seem easier in the short term to hide from yourself, but we've seen that God knows you intimately and still loves you. There's no point hiding anymore. Do you find yourself sidestepping the real issue by getting caught up in interesting periphery religious controversies like why people who professed the Christian faith uh, years ago fought so many wars? Well, of course, such arguments stimulate the intellect and might be interesting, but we use them as smoke screens to stop us having to address the real issue, which is the state of our own souls. Or maybe you're delaying the decision to trust in Jesus because you're worried it might spoil your fun. I can assure you, personally, that nothing else brings more joy and peace than knowing the forgiveness of God and having a relationship with him. So we've seen that Jesus is the source of living water which infiltrates everywhere, which washes away sin. And my third and final point is that Jesus is the source of living water which flows out of us. Once we've invited Jesus into our lives, the love of God which transforms us continues to well up inside to the extent that it automatically flows out of us in worship and in witness. 
in worship as we remember the extraordinary lengths that Jesus went to to save us. So we can't help but overspill with praise. And in witness, because God's Spirit compels us to go out and share the good news of Jesus with others. As I've been reading the start of John's Gospel recently, I've been struck that when Jesus is hanging around the respectable places, Jewish territory, which seems very safe, people seem to follow him in a kind of organic way. So one brother is invited by another brother, a work colleague by a work colleague, or one neighbour is invited to come and see him by another. And so Jesus' followers grow gradually. However, in Samaria where people worship what they do not know, flip-flopping between idols and false visions of God. One testimony from an outcast woman who has the courage to go and share with others in her village caused an explosion of those who trusted in Jesus. Just look at verse 39. She didn't overcomplicate her message. She simply retold of her experience and said, come along with me, come and see. I hope this is an encouragement to us all, but especially for those who are putting on uh, Taste Week events this week in preparation for our Life to the Full Parish outreach. You see, we're living in a culture today that is increasingly confused about what to believe, which has seen the moral failure of humanity as we've attempted to usurp God's throne, which has seen the desperation of the atheist worldview and their art that offers no hope. We've seen the loneliness that stems from making personal autonomy our number one goal, and how freedom of speech has somehow turned into an automatic license to insult and destroy anyone we wish. It's no wonder that our society is bruised and thirsts for answers. And each one of us has the privilege of coming alongside people to reveal the truth. That Jesus is the source of living water and in him there is an abundance of life and vitality. So next time you see somebody carrying a bottle of water or another drink for that matter, why not ask if you can take a sip? Who knows where the conversation might lead. Amen.